Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sweater Weather. I'm Aaron Giovanone. Great to be back with you. This week, I'm talking to Professor Ian Mackay. He is professor of history at McMaster University and director of the L.R. Wilson Institute for Canadian History. He is the author and co-author of numerous books about the Canadian left, including Reasoning Otherwise, Leftists and the People's Enlightenment in Canada, 1890 to 1920, as well as Rebels, Reds, Radicals, Rethinking Canada's Left History. These are just two books I happen to mention because I've read them recently and they're on my bookshelf. Professor Mackay has written many other books that are worth checking out, especially if you are a Canadian socialist. This is an absolute gem of an episode, if I do say so myself. Of course, it's all due to Professor Mackay's clarity and generosity. I think this is a must-watch or listen for every Canadian leftist who craves a comprehensive historical perspective on Canadian socialism and social movements. We begin our discussion talking about liberalism and Professor Mackay's now classic essay, The Liberal Order Framework, A Prospectus for a Reconnaissance of Canadian History. That was published in the year 2000, but it remains uh, extremely relevant and influential. That work frames Canadian history as the progress of a, quote, passive revolution towards uh, liberalism, which becomes the dominant and all-encompassing uh, ideology that conquers uh, and assimilates you know, all challengers to it. Then, having laid that groundwork, we dig into the details of his fascinating analyses of Canadian socialism, as he lays out in another one of his influential essays titled, For a New Kind of History, a Reconnaissance of 100 Years of Canadian Socialism. It's from that essay that this episode takes its title. You may notice that I have a different look for the show. This is my office. Recently had an opportunity to like reorganize in here to make it appropriate for video. So uh, the aesthetic has changed somewhat. You may have noticed now it's not so much cold weather, uh, but actually there's a tropical plant in the corner. Maybe I should replace it with a pine tree. I'll look into that. A lot of people thought that I really lived in a luxurious cabin in the mountains. Unfortunately, that was just a green screen, uh, a projection perhaps of my uh, like, uh, you know, crass uh, materialistic ambitions. It was a real pain to have to set up a green screen every time I did a video. It also made editing a lot more complicated. So guess what? I'm just going to keep it real with you guys. This is the real me. Unfortunately, I'm extremely normie. Uh, and even kind of cringe in some of my tastes. But, uh, you know, I just I want to be honest with you guys. So now that you know that I don't live in a luxurious cabin, it's all the more important to consider supporting the show on Patreon or on PayPal. If you like what I'm doing here, which is bringing the best of Canadian left journalism, publishing, and academia to video and audio, where it will circulate and find new find new audiences, then consider making a donation on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Canadian Sweater. My thanks goes out to Mark, who made a uh, generous donation to the show via PayPal recently. Thank you again, Mark. Okay, that's enough gabbing for me. Let's get to this wonderful interview with Professor Ian Mackay speaking about 100 years of Canadian socialism. Thanks, Ian, for being here. In your influential essay, The Liberal Order Framework, 
a prospectus for a reconnaissance of Canadian history. You argue that Canada makes the most sense if we understand it as the ongoing process of a certain politico-economic logic, to wit, liberalism. Liberalism has been dominant, so dominant in Canada that many of its basic precepts you know, have escaped scrutiny. Although perhaps that is changing somewhat now uh, at a time when the system is facing a, a crisis of legitimacy. Could you define what you mean by liberalism or the liberal order? What are the main features of this ideology you know, of which Canada is an expression? And you know, why did liberalism become dominant here? And could you also clarify what the relationship is between liberalism and capitalism? Well, thank you very much, Aaron, for having me on and for this interview. Um, it's a real delight to share my ideas with other people. In my 2000 essay, and it's hard for me to believe that it's now two decades ago, <laughs> I was trying to get at the way we might overcome what I regard as a really bad habits of Canadian historians and other intellectuals, our tendency to build really formidable silos and engage in almost infinite fragmentation of our field and not talk to each other or read each other's books. And I guess problematize the Canada that we take for granted. Uh, so I then saw, and I still urgently do see, and a real need to transcend the nationalist social cultural history narratives that are operative in this country's two major linguistic communities to give people a research tool with which we could imagine a more integrative paradigm so it's a tool it's not liberal order framework and i reread re the piece uh, you know actually <laughs> i think there are a few moments in the liberal order article which which do sort of sound like you know manifesto for rousing all the troops and but actually i'm struck by the fact that I, and but i would still underline it's one tool among many so i would say you know other important abstractions settler colonialism modernity capitalism for sure uh, these are all really significant other tools. But I think liberalism is really important as a way of getting at the Canadian dimensions of these experiences. So on this reading, Canada becomes less a self-evident and obvious thing or an entity or a nation, as we keep calling it. It's much more an arrestingly contradictory, complicated and coherent process of liberal rule. And now to get to what I mean by liberalism, I see it as something much, much bigger than a political tendency, a particular psychological disposition. Instead, I see liberal order by definition as one that encourages and seeks to extend over time and space a belief in the epistemological and ontological primacy of the category individual. So in my reading of the liberal tradition, it is centered on this almost deification of this idea of the individual, not, and the individual in liberal theory is not uh, you and me as people uh, going through our lives, you know, doing what, what people do, 
it's not, it, it's not to be confused with ordinary people. It's like almost the idealized version of the person we might become if we really applied ourselves to becoming freestanding, self-possessed. Uh, and that, I think, is the, the core of the liberal paradigm. Uh, so I think you really need to make a, a clear analytical distinction between the liberal order as a principle of rule and then the often very partisan historical forms that this principle has taken through 150 years of Canadian history. But you know, it is interesting. If you look at uh, Canadian political history and it has dwindling number of people who are really <laughs> into it, but if you look at Canadian political history, what would strike anyone non-Canadian looking at Canadian political history is how many parties have called themselves liberal. I mean, John A. Macdonald's party, the liberal conservatives, uh, Wilfrid Laurier, liberal, 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 liberal. I mean, liberal uh, regimes here have held power for four decades straight in some jurisdictions. So I would submit that just empirically, uh, liberal is a really big word in Canada. And I think it's kind of an insult to liberals just to say, well, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a, it's just a word, you know, who cares? <laughs> People call, well, no, I think that I, I think they're selling themselves short. They really are buying into a worldview, a way of thinking of life. I would call, and I called it in the article, and I, I would repeat this, I think it's a kind of secular religion. I think there is a kind of deep, deep faith, an unarguable faith within liberalism that means, as you pointed out in your introduction, it's so pervasive, so everywhere in Canada, it almost is very hard to see it, right? Uh, and, and you know, you, you get yourself into these, these positions where people want to say, well, you're not a liberal, so therefore you must be fill in the blank, you know, a, an awful person, a person who's un, against kindness, a person who doesn't want any civil liberties for anybody, you know, a, an acolyte of Paul Pod or, you know, the worst despot that you can imagine that, and, and you know, this use of the phrase illiberal as the antonym to liberal. That's not what I mean. Right. I think liberalism is much more like a coherent philosophy of being, much closer to being a religion that has precepts, that has principles, that has ideals that shouldn't be subjected to his time and place. So in the Canadian case, I think you know, if all liberals affirm liberty as they understand it, and that it has to be core to any liberal or else they have to give up the name, the, the very name comes from liberty, right? right. So all liberals, I would say, affirm liberty. Most of them would say equality before the law, formal equality. Uh, but in the Canadian context, our version of liberalism, and I think it's a very pervasive form that we find now throughout the 21st century world, emphasizes a third value, and that is property. I think property, more exactly the individual's right to hold property, so I think in that sense, and I'm borrowing some of these ideas from the renowned theorist C.B. McPherson, and I borrowed a lot of his ideas without knowing about it in 2000, and now I'm working on a book about him, and I said, oh my gosh, I really should have footnoted him more. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I keep saying, you know, C.B., you're right on, the, on my wavelength. Well, actually, that's kind of preposterous because I'm on his wavelength. I, I had no idea of how much influence I, I, I was already going on in 2000, and now I'm really realizing it. But McPherson would say, and I would agree with him, that property for our liberals is a far more fundamental value than liberty or equality. 
and in a way property is what buys you liberty and equality in a way we can see that so plainly now all around in our pandemic world how do you get out of this pandemic um okay it's it's good to be white it's good to be um you know uh not in a major rural uh, major urban area it's good to have uh, you know all sorts of things we can fold into it but what's the basic thing that's going to buy you your liberty from pandemic uh it's money it's property it's being able to seclude yourself in your own freestanding house it's your ability to buy your way out of this it's your ability to to uh, isolate people who are homeless people who are living in cramped tenements people you know nine-tenths of humanity don't have that privilege so right now in 2001 2020 we're seeing like plainly the centrality of, of property to our conceptions of liberty uh, and if we want to make this a fairer system if we want to say well you know it doesn't seem right that poor people should be dying disproportionately the, uh, of a pandemic than rich people are well we're going to have to address that question of property because that is actually the key to our social order so going back to when it starts 1840s on my reading uh, big in the canadas and the maritimes initially and then these people are so confident of their worldview they're so confident in themselves they have a philosophy they feel capable of taking that and spreading it across all of the subcontinent of northern north america um, to people that they don't know and territories they've never visited they still are quite certain that there is a certain way that one should hold land certain way that one should interact with other people and that is all premised on what cb mcpherson and i i guess i now would call possessive individuals which is this matrix of ideas that are founded on property uh you the true individual is in possession of himself and it's always a very strongly gendered uh, conception throughout the liberal tradition until our own time the true individual is in possession of himself and as a consequence is also able to possess the labor of other people uh, and on and on and on. So if you want to see why we, we so have a, such a uh, skewed system in our uh, world today, it is because of that possessive individualism. Uh, and it is that which is an issue in our own time. So this, you know, I would call it a liberal revolution. And that really strikes some Canadian ears strangely because they say, oh, revolutions that's one thing that we never had in canada we define ourselves as being counter-revolutionary we never had an american revolution fair enough but i say that if you stand back and look at the ways that people conducted themselves before the 1840s millennia in which indigenous peoples constructed their societies and their worldviews in ways that were entirely different than this ancien regime societies in new france and in the maritimes where you had notions of uh, order and, and corporate belonging and established churches and uh, stations in life to which people should adhere. These are very different than what the liberal order will give you. And the liberal order in that sense is a revolution. Uh, a revolution that, yeah, it's a long revolution. It unfolds from the 1840s to maybe the 1890s when we can say it's kind of reached a stage of completion. but our core political definitions of the self and uh, 
how you should act in society and how the state should be operated are different in 1890 than they were in 1830. They're fundamentally different. And I would call that the liberal revolution. When I, and I realized I didn't really touch on your question about liberalism and capitalism. Oh, um, I actually, that would be nice if you have, yeah, yeah, if you yeah, have yeah. something to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, and, and it's, it's a question that probably should be answered in the, the space of like several years of a seminar. <laughs> yeah. It's an intricate <laughs> question. It's a really intricate question, right? And, and yeah. people debate that intensively in the literature, and I'm, I don't want to minimize the intensity of that debate. So I'll just give you my position, and I'm saying, you know, subject to a lots of, of, of rebuttal and, and, and tension within, with other scholars. So I, I would say that the, the, the tie between liberalism and capitalism is complex. And I, I, you know, I, I follow Antonio Gramsci and how he thinks about ideology. We're going to call liberalism uh, an ideology and the liberal order, the, the order that is premised on that ideology. You could say that in that ideological framework, people who have core economic interests are fighting them out. They're, when you're, you know, I, I accept the Marxist uh, premise that social being fundamentally determines social consciousness. But I also would add the proviso, I would call it the Gramscian proviso, that it doesn't do so in an automatic or linear process. For example, suppose you're an unemployed um, coal miner in Appalachia. Um, you can say, I don't deserve to be an unemployed coal miner. Uh, I'm going to fight the system that has made me unemployed. I'm going to fight for a different way of running coal mines. I think what's happened to me is unfair and what's happened to all the people around me is unfair. Uh, that would be what a Marxist would want you to think, right? And we, we would want you to keep, okay, uh, I'm afraid though, and this is where I guess, I guess I kind of depart from some Orthodox Marxists. I would say, yeah, but look at reality. In my visit to Appalachia, I found lots of coal miners who said, yes, you know, I'm mad about losing my coal mining community. And that's why I'm a friend of coal. That's why I'm going to vote for Donald Trump because Donald Trump is going to bring back the coal mines. I'm against these Chinese because they've taken away our jobs. Uh, I'm a friend of coal. You're still acting, acting on the basis of your class identification. But in that case, social consciousness the, the link between social consciousness and social being is completely different. It's not automatic. That's where we get to the connection between capitalism and liberalism. Right. I don't think it's an automatic connection, but I think after the 1840s, it starts to seem so. And I think, especially with the Cold War, with the coming of the idea of free enterprise, with the, you know, a lot of work made, went into making people feel that capitalism, liberalism, democracy, the Western way of life are all the same thing. So I want to say they're not all the same thing. Historically, in the real world, they are deeply interrelated. And people have used liberal ideas to fight for their economic interests, especially big business and capitalism have brilliantly, I would say, I helped us believe that their interests are our interests, that we're all trying to express our individuality, right? That Bill Gates and you and I are all just individuals and some of us are losers and some of us are winners in this great game, but basically we're all in this together. Uh, of course, <laughs> I don't think that's 
the real world, but I think it's immensely ideologically effective. Uh, I think liberalism in that sense, as a lived way of life, has almost got a compulsory uh, character in 21st century Canada, right? So that's that, that in, a, in a kind of complicated way is why I, I think there is a deep, deep connection, but not an inevitable connection between capitalism and liberalism. While, while dominant, you know, liberalism has not been without its ideological challengers in Canada. And you, you pointed to some of the, the early competitors would for li against liberalism. So you know, one that you've spent much of your career writing about, though, is socialism. So in your essay, uh, For a New Kind of History, a Reconnaissance of 100 Years of Canadian Socialism, you write that, quote, what arguably set the Canadian experience apart from the American was the coincidence of socialist leftism with the first powerful independentist articulation of Canadian nationalism. Socialists in Canada became, thanks to the passive revolution, internal to the Canadian project. Elements of so socialism became central to the myth symbol complex that legitimates both the existence of the Canadian state nation and the Quebec state within a state. So this is a fascinating uh, comment to me. So I was wondering if you could unpack it a little bit. What socialist myths and symbols do you see as part of the Canadian and Quebec national projects? And you know, in what ways can we say that these elements are still socialist if they have been adopted and transformed by liberalism's passive revolution. Yeah, this is really where my heart is, is the history of the Canadian left and um, brought out reasoning otherwise uh, in 2007, 2008. So um, I really want to keep on this track, right? Because I think socialist ideas are really, really rich in Canada and horribly underexplored, right? We, we, we leftists have just forgotten all our ancestors and I think that's a huge problem. So going to your question about what stays once these, uh, once, you know, within a liberal hegemonic system, I would submit to you all around you in 2021, you're seeing what stays. And that's an ideal that Canadians should look after each other's health. It's a Soviet idea. Tommy Douglas, when he picks up that idea, is reading all kinds of people that today would you say, oh, <laughs> those people are Marxists. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> like, like who? I, I, you know, if you look at Tommy, Tom, Tommy Douglas's writings on the 19th, I can't draw the name up right off the top of my head. But people have written on, you know, quite a lot about how these, these people who are articulating the uh, idea of state medicine yeah. and the Soviet Union are starting to have a, 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 have a, a very strong impact on Tommy Douglas. Mm -hmm. Now, he has his own personal reasons for standing up for public medical care. But Medicare, uh, you know, his own uh, brushes with uh, bad health and he's just wondering, you know, why, why should uh, poor men, why should poor men die of TB and rich men don't? But there is in Tommy Douglas a gut feeling that people should look after each other. 
and that we should call upon modern science and the modern state to help them do so. So you see in that, I, I think, yeah, Tommy Douglas is not a communist and Tommy Douglas is definitely uh, you know, deeply influenced by the Christian tradition and by the social gospel and by the Baptist church. No questions for me, but I think there's something in that, that idea of a Canadian medical system that looks after everybody that remains with us. Now, to go to your question, sure, that was absorbed by the liberal order, uh, a liberal government fishing around trying to block off a left-wing challenge, and they pick up this idea of Medicare from the CCF in Saskatchewan. Remember, think of how apocalyptic it was to elect a socialist government in North America in 1944 that could actually, over time, bring in something so revolutionary. Something, it's revolutionary because it is taking away from capital a huge sphere in which capital, if you're a strict liberal, you should say capital should be allowed to make a profit out of healthcare no matter what. I mean, who are we to deny a freestanding liberal individual his right to make money in healthcare? Uh, well, the CCF introduced a new logic now, a really good response on your part would be to say, yeah, look all around you. Look at how, <laughs> look at all the pit, <laughs> gaping holes in the Canadian system. Look at how confused, uh, chaotic, partial it is. All that is true. It got subjected to what Gramsci would call a process of passive revolution, whereby you whittle down what was exciting and dynamic and and coherent about your opponent's position and you gradually turn it into a kind of piecemeal reforms that can be easily adapted by the status quo. In this case, it wasn't that easy. They fought like tooth and nail to stop this from happening. Uh, and when it did happen, yes, they've engaged in a constant campaign to weaken it. But you know, going to the point about how that got embedded in the Canadian myth simple complex, you look at any of the polls in which people say, what does it mean to be Canadian? And you'll find Medicare is up there in the top three or four key virtues of what it means to be Canadian. Now that's big. Yep. Right? It, it, even the right wing, even it's, meaning, it's meaningful. It is a meaningful yeah. Uh, yeah. part of the self-conception of Canada. Even our right wing can't honestly say we'd like to get rid of it. They have to pretend. Yeah. They're pretending. They're pretending. Sure, they are, and they would. They. I have no doubt that many of them would love to go to a fully fledged capitalist American system. I mean, that that's just you know. Why can't they do it? Well, I think there is a pretty stubborn Canadian resistance to doing that, and Canadians would resist that in part on the grounds of nationalism. Right? They would say that's not the Canadian way. Um, I think the pandemic is not going to make that sentiment die down. I think the in the pandemic, people are not going to be saying, let's trash the Canadian medical system. They're going to be saying, well, let's actually expand it. For example, why are so many old people dying in capitalist nursing homes? Why aren't they part of uh, our public health system? An integral part, why aren't they and, and instead of winding this health system down, I think uh, I would be pressing for people to say, let's learn from what we've gone through and say, what health system would really work for us, right? 
it's not going to be a smaller one. It's not going to be one that isn't state heavily state directed, and it's not going to be one that excludes vast numbers of people on the grounds of of class, race, gender, all the things that we see applied in the pandemic. So if we learn from this tragedy that we're going through, we're going to say, I don't think we're going to go back to a, a, a capitalist model of healthcare that, that we see unfolding in the United States. So I, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> I really hope not. Yeah. Could, so I, could, you, could you go back to those, uh, those early Canadian yeah, socialists yeah. that you mentioned that you write about in Reasoning Otherwise, Leftists and the People's Enlightenment in Canada, 1890 yeah. to 1920. It's a great book. I read it. So, uh, you know, you Thank mentioned, you. A, yeah, I love, I love that book. Uh, and it's a, it's a group, a cohort or a, a formation, I guess, the, I think the terminology you, you use that I don't, I didn't know much about. And I don't think maybe even a lot of people interested in the left socialists in Canada really know necessarily know that much about. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about their, you call them scientific evolutionists, and you've mentioned a few of their, their ideas, especially evolutionary theory and monopoly capitalism. These were the sort of primary influences on their ideas. Could you talk a little bit about how evolutionary theory and monopoly capitalism shaped early socialists in Canada? Sure. Um, as I mentioned before, the theorist that really matters to them is Herbert Spencer. Um, they're reading other evolutionary theorists too, but he's really big. Some of the anarchists are reading Kropotkin and Kropotkin also. So to our eye, it looks weird. Why are, you know, you'll, you can pick up a pamphlet from those days from one of these socialists, say about the farm question, right? Or the rights of women, you name it. And you'll say, oh, great. You know, and you'll be kind of expecting say a pamphlets on the farm question to be talking a lot about farms and you know cost of cows and getting wheat to market and <laughs> but, but what you're very often apt to find is maybe okay one or two pages that deal with those specifics and then 25 or 30 pages all about Spencer the theory of evolution it's quite startling right uh, over time, I got to appreciate, you know, I was initially kind of horrified, I will confess, uh, when I, I found all these people reading Spencer. And then I realized that the Spencer I thought they were reading wasn't the Spencer they were really reading. They were really grooving on a kind of working class guy who wrote about the uh, just the rights of you have to your own opinion, your, own, your right to be assigned, your right to be taken seriously as someone with a view of the world. You had all of these guys in the industrial workers of the world, for example, you know, kind of quasi-anarchists, quasi-syndicalist, uh, grassroots trade union. All these people spending immense amounts of time mastering evolutionary theory. Why did they do that? Well, I think they wanted to become experts in their own life. They wanted to be their own authorities. They wanted to understand the big, big developments all around them that were they could see we're transforming the world. And evolutionary theory gave them one way to do that. And the big thing that was transforming their world was monopoly capitalism, right? You could just see it everywhere, like the coal mines, uh, the steel mills, the railways, uh, all of this fundamentally questioned 
the liberal premises that we, we started off this interview talking about. So if you'd grown up with those and that was your sort of worldview, suddenly you're given shocking evidence that that was no longer really that clearly the case. Um, it wasn't really the, clearly the case that if you worked hard, saved up, had a little homestead somewhere, you were going to come out of this okay. Uh, and so I think that really startles people into a kind of moment, especially in the Great Depression, where the system is right off the rails. Uh, you know, we're now revisiting some of the economics of the Great Depression as in the pandemic. Uh, People so the, the, this, so this, for them, this, monopoly capitalism is new um, because this is like, uh, I don't know if they're technically corporations yet, but these are really big companies that are becoming, you know, totally dominant in this or that in, industrial sector. Uh, and this is replacing this uh, more, I guess, more liberal friendly idea of small producers, independent individuals, like a petite bourgeois sort of right. thing. Right. Okay. So they're they're so for them monopoly capitalism is new and they see it as evolving out of uh, this is why evolutionary theory is important to them. And you know, much as we might want to say, you know, should they have been reading evolutionary theory as much, and wouldn't it have been great if they if had been reading other kinds of stuff? Um, in some ways, it has a huge benefit for them because it allows them to connect things. It's very holistic in a way that I think subsequent left formations didn't quite have, which is in this holistic sense that you get from social evolutionary theory, the rights of women, uh, even uh, the environment, which is, you know, startled me a bit because I thought these people were probably completely oblivious to the natural world. Well, no, actually you find some really powerful writings in this time. Uh, some of them influenced by Prince Kropotkin, the, the Russian anarchist, uh, who, are, who are talking about the environment in ways that seem kind of startlingly 21st century. And they're saying everything connects. Uh, this poisoned river that, that we can no longer use for salmon fishing, well, that's coming right out of the same capitalist system that is uh, hurting workers. Uh, and I think evolutionary theory helps them see that, see the interconnectedness and everything. So it drives them in their own, you know, this is why I, I admire this generation much more than I thought I was going to when I went into the project. I admire them because they're self-taught intellectuals for the most part, uh, who are really uh, looking at this body of uh, theory, applying it often in very intelligent and imaginative ways to the society around them. and in ways that make allow them to connect questions that we now think are completely separate, right? They're not. And I think this, you know, if, you know, in our own 20, as we're trying to recreate the 21st century left after the pandemic, we'll want to take, you know, I would advise us to take a look at those people again, uh, not copy them, but say, okay, maybe we too should be reading a lot of evolutionary theory. Maybe we should be thinking about, uh, how we can break down these silos between areas of struggle and intellectual life that are not separate. They are actually deeply interconnected. So, so they believed um, that society as a whole was uh, evolving and, and um, progressing and monopoly capitalism was one stop on this progression. Is that correct? Some of them would have said that and they would yeah. have almost praise monopoly capitalism because it's going to be so much easier 
for the revolutionary state to just take over one big monopoly capitalist rather than you know 150. Uh, yeah, people say so, that today too. Still, well, it, I hear it now and then. I'm not so sure. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd want to repeat it. And I'm not sure yeah. I'd want to reject it. I think it's an interesting idea. Like, what do we do with Amazon? Uh, do we just dismantle Amazon and say, okay, back to local bookstores? Part of me wants to do that because I'm kind of a Luddite. On the other hand, maybe there's an argument for saying, well, let's take over Amazon. We've created this global force that has, um, maybe there's a way of uh, having a, a revolutionary uh, state take it over. Well, you know, I think that debate is, 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 is interesting. The perspective of this formation though, yeah. uh, I think they would really have thought in terms of the second possibility that uh, we will take it over and transform it. Uh, not that we will shut it down because it's uh, an offense in and of itself. They would say, we, our socialism means we're going to take over all that uh, workers have achieved and we are going to uh, liberate it from the thrall of capital. And once we do that, now, to be candid with you, there was a lot in the first formation that was didn't really translate very easily into strategy or tactics. In some ways, it was a, a, a worldview. It was a science, maybe not quite a politics yet, right? Uh, there was a way in which, for example, a good example would be the, the question of the party. Uh, parties are important uh, in for the people who come after the first formation, they're saying, well, we have to have a party. That party has to be of a, of, a, of a new type. It has to you know, do all kinds of things. It has to have Congresses. It has to have recognizable leaders. But you know, while there are a myriad of things that call themselves parties before 1921, um, you'd be hard pressed to call them any, really call them parties in any real sense. Uh, they're more like discussion groups, propaganda groups, uh, often really small. They don't have Congresses. Nobody can remember who their leaders are because I'm not sure they even really do who their leaders for, you know, I, you know, there are some exceptions like the Socialist Party of Canada generated some interesting leaders, but by and large, you're not dealing with parties in any recognizable modern sense. And I think that goes to the, weak, you know, having elaborated the strengths of the first formation, I think there was a kind of weakness there in terms of that became ever ever more glaringly obvious when it became clear that you had to uh, really resist the system tooth and nail, and you had to do so politically. Uh, and you there, couldn't I think, wait. You couldn't wait for it to evolve. No, you really could. Uh, that's 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 a great point. What would you say that uh, we talked a bit about their failures? What did they accomplish? Do you think? What did they add to the coming generations? So we're talking about the first guys? Yeah, still, sorry, still in the first formation. I'm just wondering, yeah. what do you would say did they accomplish that would uh, be, they'd pass on to the next generation? You know, it's, it's going to sound like a soft answer. Oh, that's fine. I think <laughs> like, created, I like those. <laughs> I, think, I think they created a culture. Yeah. So you could say, well, where are their lasting institutions? You'll find some. Uh, the Ukrainian left, for example, gets its start in this period. So does the Jewish left and so does the Finnish left. And these carry right on into the subsequent formation. Uh, 
those people in, in many ways, they built their institutions in this period, right? To be cultural institutions and, and they persist. And those created big neighborhoods of leftists uh, in North Winnipeg, uh, in Spadina, in uh, Jewish area of Montreal, all over the place. You'll find these, these islands of socialism and they don't evaporate with the first formation. They keep on, keep right on going. So that's a big achievement, right? They create a body of literature and they create the Winnipeg general strike. And the Winnipeg general strike, yeah, I think I end the book that way. I said, yeah, okay, lots of people probably have never heard of any of this. And I confess that many of these people wouldn't have heard of each other. It was a very fragmented movement and speaking uh, multiplicity of languages of, you know, so some of it's in the eye of the beholder, even calling it a formation, right? Yeah. Some people said, well, you know, you're just making that up. I said, no, I, I'll concede your point that I, I, I'm putting them in a framework and some of them might not have even seen that they were in that framework or it's, it's, it's kind of applied retrospectively, but I think most people would see the Winnipeg general strike and remember, and that Winnipeg general strike comes right out of Socialist Party of Canada militants about people who have seized the idea of a new tomorrow. Uh, they are going to have, you know, it's like a, a massive teaching. It's like a festival of the oppressed. It's like uh, everyone is suddenly able to speak their bitterness and to share it with the world. There's a new, a new learning, there's new ideas. That's a big accomplishment. And I, to me, that's, that's their, their, their greatest contribution. And we see it, you know, it's all across the country. Uh, in Montreal, the Université Ouvrière, uh, Albert Saint-Martin, you know, again, legendary uh, French-Canadian socialist. And uh, he's suffused with this evolutionary sensibility, right? So that's, to me, that's their biggest achievement. Whereas the second formation, yeah, that's uh, right about revolutionary I would, praxis. I would say their biggest uh, lasting achievement was a the idea of the party, mm -hmm. uh, which is immensely influential. A member of the Communist Party in 1921 is our first serious coast to coast socialist party. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really fairly fundamental to historians of the left. And secondly, they give us industrial unions. Uh, they give us a union movement that is unlike the union movement that went before, that has a, a mission uh, to really speak to fast, to all of society and to stand up to industrial bosses and to unify workers. So I think the communists, to my eye, those are, those are you know, that's the revolutionary formation. I think that's their greatest achievement. And then the, the one that comes after, who I call the radical planners or the, and more conventionally, you know, they're kind of CCF, NDP, Mm -hmm. I think their achievements are immense too. I think they can gave, we, can, we can we hold off on, on them? <laughs> I would like to dig in because I mean people are very interested in the revolutionary cohort yeah. period you mark from I think 1917 to 1935. And so you write of them in this interwar period, especially revolutionary analyses suddenly had a plausibility and an audience that they had earlier lacked. And of course, you've talked a lot about the Communist Party of Canada. You also mentioned one big union as sharing a commitment to revolution. So you've, you've already referred to, uh, you know, a little bit of this, but I would like to dig in a bit more here. What, what really changed between the first and the second cohort that made revolution seem plausible to this new generation? And so, you know, what historical circumstances shaped this, uh, this new generation of socialists? 
I don't think you can underestimate the Russian Revolution. Because here you had a, a major Western country suddenly showing that a socialist group could overthrow one of the most firmly established monarchies and make a go of it. Uh, and certainly in its early days, you know, perhaps we would say down to 1928, and I would even argue down to 1935, the, the Soviet Union is a laboratory for new experiments in democracy. Uh, and it's just exciting in a way that uh, I think is now hard to remember or appreciate, but people just sensing that their drab, meaningless lives in a capitalist system could suddenly be transformed in that way. Electrified people. And then in Canada, in the Canadian context, you need to be, uh, remember that the three great ethnic pillars of the Canadian left, Jews, Finns, and Ukrainians, all had their own uh, access to grind with the Russian Empire. I mean, pogroms against Jews, the uh, sort of colonization and exploitation of uh, Ukrainians. Uh, and same thing with the Finns, you know, who had battled uh, Russia for a measure of independence. Well, all three of them have every reason to salute the downfall of the prison house of peoples and the rise of something so much better. So, so the, you can never underestimate a, you know, that there's a powerful positive model up there. The Soviet model. And then there's the second big thing, which is a world liberal capitalist order in chaos. Seems to be palpably disintegrating. Canadians have a worse experience of it than many other Western countries. Uh, levels of unemployment, even starvation. Uh, extreme repression to extent the Canadian, you know, Canadians like to forget now, but you know we like we dote on uh, on all the uh, enormities committed by the liberal state in Canada, the deportation of the Japanese or the Kamigata Maru or yes, all these ethnic things need to be remembered, but let's not forget Estevan, where they shot down the miners uh, in cold blood, peaceful demonstration. Let's not forget Glace Bay and New Waterford. Let's not forget electrified fences surrounding steel mills, let not forget all of the, the extraordinary violence that the Canadian state turned against the left in the 30s. You know, it just, and you, you this might sound polemical, and I suppose it is a bit. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> you know, it it is kind of, you know, uh, those of us who have a sort of soft spot for liberals and say, you know, we need to understand them, and, you know, but when you get into the records of the the cabinet uh, and highest echelons of Ottawa. And they say, well, you know, we know that deporting these radicals back to Eastern Europe is probably going to lead to their torture and death. But, uh, oh, well, <laughs> Celebi, <laughs> next item. <laughs> I mean, they really didn't regard them as human. And, and they didn't, uh, they, especially uh, uh, Ukrainians uh, and people from Eastern Europe, they, they racialized them and they, they treated them like contemptible outsiders who basically just deserve to die and they deserve to die because of their beliefs. So if you're a good liberal and you believe in 
as good liberals do, liberty of opinion, liberty of conscience, freedom of expression, all values I actually also cherish. If you believe in those, how does that line up with a state that's willing to kill people because they hold the wrong views about political economy? So I find that's also a really interesting tension about the 1930s that it's underexplored. It's just how many conscientious liberals start to look around them and say, my God, what kind of place is this? There's something must be something fundamentally askew, something fundamentally wrong with this system. And so these two great openings, one a positive model of the Soviet Union and one the negative things that are all around you, people dying, uh, people being shot on the street for the crime of being Ukrainian and, and being communist. This is apt to really mobilize people. And to an extent, I think, has been underplayed. It's mobilizing middle class people, too. It's not just the normal suspects of left history. Uh, we're actually getting well beyond that to creating, you know, that's why th the idea of the popular front, which becomes very powerful in Canada in the 1937, 38 really deserves much more close attention because you're getting all of these people who are now, in a way, Gramsci would say this, uh, they've been thrown out of the conventional ideological ruts by an organic crisis of the system. Rather like the organic crisis we're going through now. People being thrown out of their conventional ways of thinking, their you know, well-established, often inherited ways of doing politics and thinking about themselves, and now it's, they have to think of something new. And there is a left, a coherent, well thought out, grounded left that can say, well, maybe there are other ways we could do this. Come to our meetings, uh, start reading our books. Uh, let's, let's really start to develop something bigger and more all inclusive than a left that's primarily about the rights of trade unions. You see what I mean? It's, you're starting to bring in more, you're starting to expand the circles of resistance. Uh, it's a profoundly exciting moment from 37, I would say to 44. And with the election of the CCF government in Saskatchewan, I mean, that's kind of, a, you know, that's an amazing, amazing thing to have pulled off. And lots of those people are Marxists. They're not just, they're not, lots of them are Christian radicals. And, and uh, this is a point I bring out of, in reasoning otherwise. There's a way in which Christian radicalism is as almost more radical uh, than what secular radicalism that is pervasive in, in among Marxists is because if you really think that capitalism is intrinsically evil, which actually I do think, um, you're not going to be actually easily mollified by this little concession or, you know, a there, there. <laughs> you know, thank you for your opinion and now let's move on to the next. No, you really think that there's something intrinsically wrong with this system. It, it violates uh, all of the ethical norms that you've grown up with. Uh, and there's a strength, a power, a, a, a stubbornness to that conviction. If you look around you today, who's really rising up against the pandemic? Lots of them are liberation theologists, uh, based communities in Brazil. Uh, who still believe, and as I as a prefer, preferential opera, uh, uh, preferential decision for the poor, right? And um, they aren't going to be easily budged from that. 
So I think you have these two big currents that, that make it possible in 1944 in Saskatchewan for the left to seize power. And I think there was kind of a happy accident. They had a hopeless liberal opposition and a charismatic leader and, you know, lots of good, lots of things, cards fell in their favor. But look at the implications of that, right? You've finally got a state government and that ushers in uh, uh, I think a, con a conviction that we can plan this differently. That's a great segue into this this next uh, formation, which you call you provide a really compelling analysis of this period you call national state management period of socialism, which comes to prominence in the 1940s, like you've already been talking about. I found this particularly thrilling too because. It just, uh, you know, this is a political moment that I have some living memory of because my my grandmother was uh, a CCFer in the 1940s, uh -huh. and she mentioned, yeah, I mean, I've heard sort of family lore about this, and yeah, sort of my my earliest uh, political memories um, are of my grandmother, of course. Much later, I'm a little kid, and she's like yelling at Brian Mulroney on TV, <laughs> and uh, I remember her talking about how much she liked Ed Broadbent and all this stuff. So oh, she yeah. really she really was in that line um, for for the rest of her life. And um, you mentioned like the this period of the 1940s. It's marked by struggles between the CCF and the and the CPC, CPC the Canadian, uh, sorry, CCP, the Canadian Communist Party, or uh, or what is it? It's the Communist Party of Canada. No, I was right. Yeah. I was right the first time. The CPC. <laughs> they changed their name to the Labour Progressives, you right. know, in elections, and you know they're they're struggling for power in the unions. But both of these parties, importantly, you say, they have national, the national state at the heart of their conception of socialism. So can, can you talk about why the national state takes up so much focus for Canadian socialists? You know, how is it also that the dominant forces of liberal, liberalism kind of pull them toward conceiving of so, socialism as a kind of uh, managerialism, too? Um, and uh, yeah, could you talk about that a little bit? That's a terrific question and, and, and a really intricate phenomenon that we're trying to get at, right? Because I can understand why somebody in 1944 would vote for the CCF. And even if they aren't particularly radical, would like the idea of good government, uh, a good, efficient government that can plan, that is scientific, that is rational, that is not going to give out favors, uh, corrupt you know it's not going to be corrupt it's it's going to proceed in a transparent and clear way that's fair to people i can really understand the appeal of that if, to tell you the truth it appeals to me now i would like to see a scientific planning state in this pandemic that isn't going to bow down to the pressures of business but is actually going to listen to the needs of people i think that ideal is not an irrational ideal so I call it radical planism to kind of distinguish us, you know, get us out of the, the, the mold of saying, oh, the communists are here, the, the social democrats are there, and one of, one of the crazy dreamers and the other ones are the practical people. And well, if you look at the communist party after 37, especially in the popular, but they're always talking about rational planning. They start to talk about amending the Canadian constitution. In some ways, the CCF is more left-wing than the communist party in the 1940s and uh, but they're both both of them have come through the second world war experience where it's plain that the, the government can basically plan the economy can create whole industries out of scratch from nowhere in no time at all and basically boom you got an industry because we're fighting a war 
uh, it really inspires leftists. Uh, and especially, you know, my favorite uh, document from this time is the CCF's Make This Your Canada. Just love that. <laughs> Just love that. I love book. that book too. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, David Lewis and Frank Scott. Um, but what startles, you know, and what startles you will startle you uh, about it if you haven't read it is... Um, just the fallback idea is the economy should be run by the state. Sure, we'll make some role for business, small business, if it can defend itself on by saying it's never going to become a monopoly, it's going to be fair to workers, it's going to... But the basic thrust of Make This Your Canada, the Make This the Canada that we're making is a very much a state-run Canada, right? And creates, I would say, an ever dwindling role for your uh, free enterpriser. And certainly the free enterprisers knew this very well when they <laughs> launched sort of vicious anti-Semitic campaigns against David Lewis and you know, just no holds barred uh, attempts to really paint them as devil incarnate. Um, they knew that the, you know, what was often denounced by the communists as, as sort of middle of the road milk toast yeah i i don't think make, make this your canada as a middle of the road uh centrist argument i think it's actually pretty far left and and then i think the the canadian capitalists who read it that way were completely right <laughs> so th there was a real moment in which this radical planism converged with revolutionary energies right you really want things to be completely different and radical planism lay, lays out a schema whereby fully informed scientific experts unbeholden to private interests are going to make this a much better country of course in retrospect we can see some problems with this one too right that okay it could be that those experts would also have their own material interests those experts might not actually be very democratic they might actually be beholden in subtle and uh, not so subtle ways to the private interests that they're regulating all that has, has happened in state theory since the 1970s would say oh these people are you know, kind of oversimplifying what a state could be but i would say it just caution us not to write it off too quickly uh, as with the first formation, as with the second formation, this idea of a rational state that can take everybody's interests into account, this is a noble ideal. And in Saskatchewan, to a point, I think they made it work. Now, you know, I'm fully down with the critics of the Saskatchewan CCF who point out its, its, its tendency not to challenge the uh, settler colonialism, not to challenge the grievous sufferings of indigenous people i think that's a very sound critique i think overall over time this did get displaced by liberals this did get accommodated uh, this did get to seem like a bunch of you know little reforms that you could easily absorb into the system uh, and i think today many ndpers uh, that i know would implicitly accept the existing order of things and really they're only calling for their marginal or incremental improvement. Um, and generally, I guess, I think the reforms they're calling for are okay. They just don't go to the heart of the problem. And I think that's what we're seeing now. We're, we're in a, a period in which the entire civilization 
of which we're inescapably apart is coming apart, is, is disintegrating. And I don't think there palliatives are going to do it. Uh, so much as I, I respect the CCF NDP tradition and uh, would loosely affiliate myself with it, I would also say it needs to go so much deeper into the underlying contradictions of the way we live now. And that's not just like that's that's you know the way this is often presented is dreamers versus feelers, uh, sensible pragmatic people versus crazy ideologues. I think the pandemic is showing the superficiality of that dichotomy. How do you come up with a, a response to a pandemic that seems to have been fed by global patterns of deforestation and capital accumulation? How do you shut that engine down without actually transforming how we do the state and civil society in a fundamental way? I can't see how you can do it through well-meaning, gentle reforms personally. Well, we certainly have, we get plenty of state management today still. It's just in whose interests. And you yes. see that playing out right now during the pandemic for sure. So, I mean, that's the, the more liberal version of this planism, a not so radical planism, <laughs> uh, using your terms there. In this- yeah, uh, And I'm not, I would never uh, deny that planism is so easily absorbed into a liberal passive revolutionary strategy, where you just take little bits of your adversary's position and also the adversaries themselves, the ones you can welcome into your big tent and the ones you can't welcome into your big tent, you exile them, or you uh, marginalize them, or you, you, you make it extremely difficult not to be part of this new hegemonic framework, which emerges after the Second World War, you know, the Keynesian welfare state, um, and it is you know, capitalist through and through. What happens to the working class in the, this conception of national state management? Uh, are they like no longer revolutionary or what role uh, is there for them? And that's a question that is right on the cutting edge of historical research, right? We, we brand new, exciting uh, work coming out on just how much revolutionary energy was still there in the working class. Wave after wave of wildcat strikes, uh, really, not and what an illegal wildcat strike, right? So the, the state could have crushed it legally, but it couldn't uh, practically because these people were indispensable to the war effort uh, all across the country. And big, you know, moments in which workers are just saying, we want, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to put up with this anymore. Uh, we insist that you do this and, and really interesting grassroots. Uh, mobilizations. So I would, I, you know, I would caution you, the historiography is still pretty fresh on this and there'll be lots of to and fro, but I would caution you against thinking the, re the working class suddenly didn't become revolutionary. I think it takes time. It takes, you know, I think maybe down to 1948, it's still a fairly uh, dynamic, forceful, aggressive, revolutionary class. I mean, it still was able to create a huge strike in Hamilton in 1946. Again, I would call it an illegal, you know, a lots of illegality in that strike. Uh, government within its rule book could have crushed it uh, and it didn't. Uh, why was that? Because they knew that it was very dangerous for them. Uh, and 
you know, even in the communist unions, uh, Canadian Siemens Union, uh, you'll find immense amounts of grassroots energy, of fervor, of enthusiasm, uh, all sorts of places we didn't look for because we were too zoned in on monolithic communist party and how, you know, Moscow rules paradigm. We were not looking at the grassroots, you know. Montreal, brilliant struggle at 45, 46, where they take over all this vacant housing uh, and create a housing struggle. Return veterans mobilized by the Communist Party to go after the housing question. Again, on the wrong side of the law, but the law has a hard time cracking down on them. For one thing, the return veterans, right? And they don't want to... <laughs> and it's so Bad plainly, optics. It's so plainly... Uh, a glaring issue that the state is not responding to. Now, when does it start to become less of a revolutionary force, I would say, is the Cold War. And the Cold War does enormous damage to the Canadian left. Uh, it starts to mean that we demonize the once influential communists. They're sort of like, oh, you know, <laughs> can't talk about them anymore. Uh, and it, it uh, lots of purges and suffering and career sacrifice to an extent the Canadians have not really faced up to. Um, and, you know, why diversity of Canadians like homosexuals in, in Ottawa? You know? <laughs> Who knew? Uh, all these people, all, all across the country are now perceived as security threats. Uh, that chill really starts to work. And of course, there's rising standards of living. So gradually, these industrial unions that were the great fruit of the, the second revolutionary formation, they start to become fairly settled parts of the industrial landscape. Uh, and these days, you know, it's almost nepotistic if you're in one of those big unions, you can sort of pass off your, pass on your job to your, your kids. And, you know, not exactly the revolution, not about the revolutionary nuclei that the communists were hoping that they would be. Uh, so I think that I would point more to the Cold War as the the thing that changes a lot. So the, the next period, the New Left, you describe as revolutionary humanism and national liberation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because the Cold War, you've been describing discredited previous socialist formations as, you know, these are quotes, obsolete communism or sold out social democracy. Now, this was, you write, you know, a cohort attracted by a plethora of ideologies from anarcho-syndicalism to left nationalism, whose basis of unity lay only in a humanist critique of capitalism and the liberal order, the system, an impatient uh, sense that radical action could bring about its downfall. So this had manifestations in English Canada, you know, the waffle faction of the NDP, which was left nationalist, is kind of a famous example. But, you know, as you write, quote, arguably no other North American political jurisdiction came as close, came as close to a new left political revolution, an actual crisis of the ruling political order, as did Quebec in the late 1960s and early 1970s. I feel like this is something we don't know enough about in English Canada. So, you know, can you talk about why Quebec was so receptive to new left ideas in the 60s and 70s? And, you know, how did socialist ideas manifest there? Yeah. And, you know, just to pick up uh, on how we don't know much about this, this is the last year was the 50th anniversary of the War Measures Act. And 
I would say, commemorated with all the things you would expect in a liberal order about how these crazy radicals did this terrible thing. And well, thank goodness the Ottawa stepped in and we have order again. And phew, that was, <laughs> <laughs> it gets so frustrating sometimes the simplicities that you know, people pass off as, as history. Mm. When you actually go back to 1970 and it's a buzz with these ideas and uh, of national liberation, of uh, equality, of uh, listening to the entire world, of participating in the rising of the third world and uh, uh, overthrowing colonialism. Uh, these are huge, you know, and Sean Mills, uh, I should refer to his breakthrough work and sort of showing us how these were both rooted, grounded in Quebec and immensely transnational, right? And this idea of liberation, going from one spirit to the other, women's liberation, black liberation, Quebec liberation, uh, gay liberation, all this idea of liberating yourself. And it goes to that point about the new left is that it, it had a much more personal dimension than say the third or the second formations. This was where you, you know a, a person who grew up say with the communist experience in mind and how you should write a communist manifesto. You don't start talking about, you know, your personal life and what it was like to grow up with mom and dad and, and you know, how you feel about others sexually or, you know. No, you talk about the specter haunting Europe. That's right, right, right. You, you don't dwell upon yourself. And the new left, that's what you did. That, you know, it had, let's not, I'm not minimizing it because uh, some of the, the, what people, especially students felt was the crushing alienation, meaninglessness, sheer pointlessness of uh, education and mass institutions that had been thrown up almost, you know, lickety split, uh, no planning, uh, no real conception. We said, we need a university. Let's pack thousands of people in there. Who cares what they learn? Uh, as long as they pay their fees and, you know, mass, mass alienating institutions, mass brutalist architecture uh, that crushes just by its the concrete weight of it seems like crushing you, uh, crushing you into your puny insignificance. Uh, so these students were responding to almost a spiritual crisis that they detected in the civilization they were being called upon to inhabit. Add to that the war in Vietnam, the national liberation struggles all around the world. This is a deeply uh, new experience for leftists. Uh, and out of this will come women's liberation, gay liberation, all sorts of movements that try to tie, tie, tie your personal sense of alienation with the wider world. And, and you know, a big part of this was you have to live your politics and your organization should be prefigurative i.e. it should anticipate in its democratic structures the better world that you want to come afterwards. So no more central committees, uh, no more uh, packing meetings. No, we want democratic discussions. We want free form. We want participatory democracy to use the buzzword of the day. Uh, why did it appeal so much to Quebec? Well, Quebec is arriving in the 1960s with unresolved national questions. English Canadians are extremely resistant to learning about how they crushed uh, Quebecois. Uh, they just don't want to hear it. Uh, you know, 
or they move quick simply onto you know Quebec having oppressed other people, which is perfectly a perfectly valid thing to point out. But it is in a way, you know, if if you don't remember that the British troops occupied Lower Canada, subjecting its population to rape, pillage, mass destitution. Uh, if you don't remember that, uh, you've got a kind of partial idea of how people came to view Canada in such markedly different ways. And that view of Canada stayed in Quebec, magnified by the conscription crisis, magnified by the Duplessis years, who was kept in office with the connivance of liberals. Um, these people uh, really want to see something new for themselves as Quebecois. And it looks to them like a national liberation struggle. Uh, so that's in many ways why it takes off so profoundly, especially in Montreal, um, and why this the system as a whole could be shaken by the events that transpired, not just the FLQ crisis and the War Measures Act, the whole uh, rise of a very effective left after that uh, in the Parti Québécois, which had a very strong left wing, uh, almost a, one we could almost call it a Euro-communist left wing, right? That's really gravitating the ideas of Salvador Allende and the Chilean example. Uh, the whole idea of liberation theology coming back to Quebec, often brought by missionaries who had been you know, sent to the third world and came back, A, horrified at what they see in the third world and completely uh, disillusioned with their church, which seemed to be party to the, the, the horrible oppressions that they'd seen when they were abroad. There's a lot of dynamic energies being built into this Quebec situation. And I think it's, it's one of the great moments of Canadian left history, uh, really, that you know, right down to the early 80s, there's this, this just Quebec drive to create something new and different in Canada. There, um, it probably the legacy of that um, that new left in Quebec is still still present in present day Quebec, wouldn't you say? I mean, I th feel like they have elements of the social social democracy that are sort of missing elsewhere in Canada. Uh, oh. Would you Would you agree? In Quebec Solidaire, uh, you would have the largest left party in North America. There's nothing like Quebec Solidaire. This strange fusion of far left groups, uh, social movements, feminist movements, gay movements, all environmental movements, eco-socialists. Uh, I'm sure that it, if I were in the inner circles of Quebec Solidaire, I would say this is not a perfect party. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> of course it isn't. But stand back and look. This is a big deal. Uh, you know, these are these are lots of, of, of communists and social democrats and uh, liberationists and feminists and environmentalists of all descriptions have managed to make uh, a party together. Now, I think that's a big. I think that's a huge achievement. And uh, you know, as some, an historian of the left, I think that's that's that is very noteworthy. Uh, there is, I can't think of many other parallels across the country. And social programs that Quebecers have, um, thinking of daycare. daycare and also just much cheaper tuition, if that's, yeah. I think that's still the case, right? So uh, these, are, these are part of the legacy of this new left, right? 
the legacy of the quiet revolution on the new left. That's right. And it's hard for even a right wing government like the present government in Quebec to undermine them. I mean, they will try. Uh, that's what rightists do. But, you know, I think they appreciate that there are things that you don't really, once they're set as what, what's a, a new social program has come into place and people see that it works uh, pragmatically, sensibly, like daycare in Quebec, like Medicare across the country, uh, it's hard to roll them back, right? Uh, so I think once uh, people sh can see that it works, uh, suddenly it's very, very hard to undermine it. And there, there's a, a key to what the next left should learn, right? Yes, be pure and pure et dur, as the French say, you know, hard and fast. Don't, don't flinch from your, uh, uh, follow the, uh, have the strength of consequences. If you believe something, you really have to stand up for it. That's all true. Not I, to uh, be, but be real. That's the second part of it is be real. Give people things that they can identify with, speak a language that they can understand, Give them things that are small victories on en route to the bigger victories. And I think uh, the social welfare programs that we now have that guarantee people from absolute horrific, horrific starvation and suffering, they're not perfect. They're radically imperfect. But they are, I would say, like early pocket versions of what a better society might look like. May I, may I quote you from 100 Years of Canadian Socialism? I just, because it's such a reading it, rereading it the other day, just felt it was so prescient you said this. I mean, um, so it really struck me. So quote, over time, again and again, capitalism and the liberal order create enemies. Excuse me, create the liberal order, create armies of critics and activists. It is happening again. They do not yet call themselves socialists, but they likely will. Is there, is there any other advice you might want to give by way of signing off? Uh, you've said some wonderful things already. If I were to look at like the, the situation we're in now, I would say lots of people right now are experiencing what I would call a moment of refusal. And this moment of refusal is when you say, this is bullshit. Uh, how can how can we possibly endure this? Uh, there has to be a better way that we can manage our lives. Uh, this is uh, gross. Uh, ugh, you know, the moment of refusal is like no more. Uh, enough is enough. Now that can be easily tamed, or it can, it can go in different directions. You start to move on to a mo moment of supersedure, where people say we need to work out what it is that is causing this 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 huge gross problem that is afflicting me so you're starting to get to a sense that you can reason your way out of this you can develop a kind of system of ideas a way of thinking about what you want this is a huge moment of opportunity for the next left but it needs to be seized correctly right it needs to really be seized with an uh, insight into all of the lefts that went before us and not trash their, their achievements or romanticize them. Try and grasp what you can from this legacy and then say, okay, what can we do with it now? That is different. And, and I think there you'll see 
people starting to move. Lots of people, I imagine, will say, let's go back to normal. I want to go back on my holiday. I want to get back into Cuba or sip margaritas or all the things that people are missing, all these middle-class pleasures that they, you know, sure. Yeah, I could, perfectly human uh, way of thinking. But I suspect a good minority of people will retain a pretty vivid impression of what they've gone through in 2020, 2021. And they won't say, phew, that was a blip. Hope that doesn't come again. For one thing, the epidemiologists are warning us and the scientists are warning us, this is the first of many pandemics. In many ways, we're lucky. Uh, for all the tragedy that this has caused, it hasn't been as lethal as many others, as zoonoses that have arisen uh, as a result of capitalist deforestation and agribusiness throughout the global south. The next one might be far more lethal. People who think that way, and you know, it's not a fringe opinion, it's, it's fairly, a fairly mainstream scientific observation that these pandemics seem to be ever accelerating, and especially the zoonoses seem to be on a roll ever since the 1990s. Um, people who think that way are not gonna be easily then settled down with a thought that we can return to normality. They're going to be saying, you know, there was something fundamentally wrong with that normality that led us into this situation. How can we think it through again? And you're going to have to, I think, go to some of the old left ideas and then reanimate them. You want to going back to the first formation, you're going to have to start, start reading again about humanity's evolution on the planet and how it can be conceivably brought under some form of political direction, never final and never complete and never hubristic about the rest of the, the natural world in which we are inextricably wound. From the second formation, I think you take the idea of unions, strong unions, powerful unions, active unions. Uh, what do uh, people in long care, uh, long care home uh, facilities need? What do uh, people who are being ground down and being asked to give their lives in meatpacking companies like your, the folks you have in Alberta? Well, what do these people need? They need really strong unions. They need strong industrial unions and they need strong industrial unions that are transnational, that are linked to working class struggle all around the globe because that is where this is unfolding. Uh, you need a you, new, far more vigorous, far more aggressive, far more militant trade union movement. From the third formation, I think you take the idea of rational state planning. Um, you need a state that can plan. You need, it's hard for me to see how this can be fixed without state actors in the picture. Uh, and from the fourth formation, I think you would say, yeah, but you don't want that to be the top-down, undemocratic planning that came to be associated with, say, the managerial state of the 1950s, 1960s. Because uh, that not only is a kind of offensive to our democratic sensibilities, it also doesn't work. It's not, you know, one thing we're learning from the pandemic is how much, how pivotal it is to have people who are in touch with their communities, in touch with, you know, 
who people are and, and how we can relate to them and how we can respond to their needs. And that's not going to be, so I think you can learn from all previous four lefts, right? And from the, and I would say, you know, from the socialist feminist left, I would call that the fifth formation, you can learn how much of this pattern has been gendered and, and, and basically operates to the disadvantage of people who are, for reasons of race, gender, sexual orientation, have been cast aside by the mainstream. Uh, so all of these five formations have to be borne in mind and we have to be humbly willing to learn from them. And yet at the same time, never try and copy them. We're trying, we have to create something brand new. And I'm sure when we see it for the first time, we say, what? You can't, <laughs> especially old leftists like me will say, oh, but I think old leftists like me have to take, you know, say, okay, uh, but you're, you're, you're coming at that with your history. People are trying to make a new history and they'll be doing it in ways that are startling, innovative, like all the previous formations that have to be coming up with something new and really uh, having the strength of their convictions. On that uh, wonderful note, I think we'll, we'll finish up. Thank you very much, Ian. It was a great, great talking to you. Great to chat to you. <laughs>